This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Tuesday, the energy debate, will coal mining communities be protected as the economy shifts to other energy sources? And the world's richest man, Elon Musk, buys Twitter. How will he keep his promise of free speech? He has said that he wants this to be more of what he calls a free speech platform, which most likely means that so long as what you post doesn't violate local law wherever you are, he's going to let that go up. We begin today with politics and the Pacific. Labor is promising to restore Australia's place as partner of choice in the Pacific. Federal Labor has announced it will boost foreign aid spending in the region by more than half a billion dollars over the next four years if it's elected in May. Federal funding is around $1.7 billion annually. The Pacific has been thrust into the political spotlight after the Solomon Islands struck a controversial security pact with China. For more, I spoke a short time ago to the ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts. Stephen, good afternoon. What has Labor had to say? Well, there are several elements to this package, Sally. Some of them have already been pretty well fleshed out this morning, including a plan to boost funding for the ABC to to broadcast more widely in the region, a plan to also increase maritime surveillance uh, in the Pacific uh, and a few other bits and pieces, including a new defence college, essentially, for uh, for, for Pacific personnel using existing bricks and mortar, it has to be said. But uh, this morning, Penny Wong has laid out the other elements of the plan, including a relatively sizable increase to ODA for the Pacific, some $525 million over four years. Uh, not a huge amount considering the overall magnitude of the budget, but not nothing either. On top of that, uh, she's also said that Labor will overhaul Pacific mobility schemes, bringing in effectively a new permanent migration pathway for some people in the Pacific, as well as overhauling Pacific Labor schemes, including wrapping in the, the Nationals' prized ag visa into that Pacific Labor program. Program, something I imagine the Nationals won't be delighted about. Uh, on top of that, there's also a plan to boost in- infrastructure for, for, for climate resilience, although details on that are very sparse at the moment, and a plan for more p- uh, diplomatic exchanges between Pacific Island countries and Australia. Uh, this is how Penny Wong, the, the Shadow Foreign Minister, characterised the plan, saying it was an attempt to harness all of the levers of government to boost Australia's standing in the Pacific. We will leverage Australia's strengths. We understand we are in a time of competition, so you have to look to your competitive advantage. The power of Australia's voice, the power of our proximity, the power of our people-to-people relationships and the power of our economic relationships. This is how you work to secure the region and this is what this package does. Now, Sally, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison has already criticised Labor's full package. Now, he hasn't seen all of the details. He was making these comments just before Penny Wong spoke, so he was restricting himself to the elements that had already been laid out, including the plan to boost money to the ABC. Scott Morrison was pretty scathing generally about the AB, about the uh, the priorities that were being championed by Labor. He said it was naive to think that giving more money to the ABC could stop something like the China Solomon Islands Security Pact. Uh, And he said that uh, Labor was largely imitating many of the initiatives that the coalition has already been pursuing under its Pacific step up. Let's take a listen to the Prime Minister speaking just before Labor's press conference. I find it odd 
that having been so adamant and supportive of what Australia was doing, what our government was doing in the Pacific, that on the eve of election, someone who runs their speeches past the Chinese government before giving them is now going to be critical of us. I note what they've said today. What they're effectively saying is they're going to keep doing what we've been doing. There's one difference, though. I sent in the AFP. The Labor Party wants to send in the ABC when it comes to their Pacific solution. That's the Prime Minister there talking about uh, this issue of funding for the Pacific. Uh, Stephen, you cover this region and these issues a lot. Is it surprising that this has become such a a front of centre issue in in an election campaign? Look, I wouldn't have predicted it would be front of centre. Uh, The thing that really changed the calculus here was this pact between Solomon Islands and China, which some analysts fear could see a Chinese military presence very close to Australia, less than 2,000 kilometres from our eastern coast. That is really what has thrown the Pacific very much into centre frame. And I think it might have played a part in the announcement today. I think it's unlikely that Labor would have essentially taken out uh, its Pacific pledge when it comes to aid from its broader ODA promise, were it not from its desire to try and present an alternative to what it sees as, as government bungling in the Pacific. So the the fact that this deal has been struck has really stoked anxieties in Canberra about Australia's strategic vulnerability uh, and intensified debate in an area where the coalition has traditionally got quite a lot of credit, uh, namely its efforts uh, to really build Australian diplomatic and military credibility in the region. The assessment of most analysts, broadly speaking, is that the Pacific step-up, whilst not perfect, had done a broadly good job, but Labor sees in the China-Solomon Islands deal a real opening where it can accuse the government of talking a big game but failing on crucial details. And I think that's why we've seen Penny Wong and others step up today because they see a weakness there and it's one that they want to exploit. That's the ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. Well, as the political debate over Australia's role in the Pacific heats up, there's still a lot of uncertainty and nervousness about China's plans in the region. International security experts say China's been engaging in what's called grey zone strategies in the Pacific, meaning it's stopped short of all-out war, is instead using coercive military, trade and economic levers to gain dominance. So what can Australia do to counteract it? Catherine Gregory reports. A blurry area between peace and war. That's what international security experts call the grey zone. And it's something we're in the middle of right now, as Australia and China square off, diplomatically for now, in the Pacific. States are behaving more aggressively than they would in normal peacetime, but not doing things that would quite cross the threshold into going to war. Ben Scott is an international security expert with the Lowy Institute, and he explains the term grey zone emerged in 2015 to explain Russia's initial move into eastern Ukraine and China's advance into the South China Sea, where states weren't abiding by international rules but were also avoiding a full-on war. In both cases involving great powers, revisionist great powers that wanted to to change the world, but to do so slowly, incrementally and perhaps deniably. But Ben Scott thinks the term is a bit outdated now because it encompasses so many things from economic coercion to underground cyber attacks and interference. 
particularly given China's obvious expansion into the Pacific at the moment. A better way of trying to understand what we're now calling grey zone competition is just competition short of war. Okay, and look, let's talk more about what's happening with China in the Pacific. Is that an example of grey zone operations? Yes. I mean, it's a cliché, but it's true that China's approach to international competition is to try and win without fighting. Uh, So that that includes a range of things. I mean, I would say it extends from China's behaviour in the South China Sea to uh, China's promotion of Huawei through to its its clear efforts to try and establish some kind of security presence, possibly even a military base in, in the Southwest Pacific. Ben Scott says China's agreement with the Solomons is a successful demonstration of grain zone tactics. But he thinks it's too early for Australia to panic. It's not game over. We don't know how the agreement's actually going to be implemented, how it's going to survive very fluid politics in Solomon Islands. I mean, it could go very badly wrong for China. It could go very badly wrong for Solomon Islands. And it's not guaranteed that Australia's worst fears will be realised, I think. Given it can't match China in military power, what can Australia do? Jacob Wallace is an international security and a cyber expert with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The kinds of diplomatic tools that Australia has at its disposal are um, its aid and development programs, military uh, diplomacy. Um, We can um, provide security assistance, as we have done in the Solomon Islands. Uh, We can assist in the training of foreign traditional uh, partners, but also non-traditional partner militaries. We can undertake um, exercises with security forces. We can um, establish um, strong diplomatic links. And what we need to do is think clearly about how China leverages its assets of state power, recognising that this is a a government that sees no distinction between uh, the arms of government, industry, uh, civil society, media, in the ways that we do here. Do you think either of our political parties have got it right on this? Do you think their updated plans, now that this sort of has hit crisis point, um, might help? Whichever party comes into government needs to work on a plan for how to compete in, in the grey zone and consider where our red lines are. We, we're starting to use language like red lines from the Prime Minister. We need to carefully uh, consider that language, carefully consider the indicators that tell us where we are in terms of threats to our own freedom to manoeuvre, threats to our own national security. That's Jacob Wallace there from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ending that report from Catherine Gregory. Back home now, and the Prime Minister is campaigning in North Queensland again today, spruiking spending on energy alternatives. The coalition is promising millions of dollars worth of four hydrogen hubs in Townsville and Gladstone and funding for carbon capture projects. Both major parties are juggling the political challenge of not being seen to abandon traditional industries at the same time as supporting new, cleaner energy sources. Stephanie Smale reports. The Prime Minister has spent the morning spelling out his government's energy outlook, acknowledging the industries of the past and present, but opening the door to the sources of the future, like hydrogen. You make the investments in technology. You put the incentives in place, which enables hydrogen hubs to be established, carbon capture use and storage technology to be developed. That's good for Australia. And then we take those products and that technology and we sell it to the world. We have always been a significant energy exporter in this country and we will be in the future. 
We will continue with our traditional exports and we'll be also upgrading our capability to fully lead in the new energy exports, which will drive the energy economy of the future. The challenge of finding the political balance between the old and the new isn't going away, with Liberal National Party Senator Matt Canavan again making his stance clear on Sky News. We don't need hydrogen. Hydrogen hubs is not going to defend us against military bases in the Solomon Islands. Mm. We need reliable power now. Experts argue the hydrogen funding is a step in the right direction. Fiona Beck is a senior research fellow at the Australian National University School of Engineering. She points out earmarking hubs to focus on developing the hydrogen industry is a cost-effective way forward. But the question that isn't going away is what happens to the communities relying on fossil fuel industries. There are communities in Australia that really rely on the fossil fuel industries um, as a whole for their economic welfare. And this is going to change over the next 10 years, no matter what the government does as our export industries change. There really needs to be a a well thought out strategy for, for supporting these communities that involves a lot more community consultation. Amanda Carl has been helping businesses and communities make the move to sustainable economies. She supports the funding promises too, but argues neither of the major parties have made it clear how they're going to keep jobs going when traditional industries die off. We haven't really seen detailed plans from either of the major parties. We've seen sort of big announcements around money, but when it comes down to targets and timelines and milestones and the specifics of what they're investing in, how they're going to support regions and workers, that detail is missing. So it's really hard to know. And even industry is saying, you know, they are wanting government to support them, um, but we've got to do it in a way that actually supports workers and communities for the long term. We don't want a repeat of some of the past experiences around the gas industry where you have this massive boom but people are scratching their heads afterwards saying, what did we get out of that? How much work will need to go into moving people from traditional industries into hydrogen? Are they completely different jobs? We had a forum with some of the key hydrogen players in central Queensland recently, and the good news was that most of the skills that are needed, workers already have. In the plumbing industry or in the gas industry, uh, workers have those skills. There's going to be some work around accrediting them as they move across and also upgrading some of their skills. There's a bit of work to do, but most of the skills already exist. As well as questions about where the jobs will come from and when, there's concern the federal government is promising funding to carbon capture projects, as well as the hydrogen hubs. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me and a lot of people within the energy industry itself. You know, This is all happening because the world is decarbonising, which means it's moving away from using fossil fuels. Carbon capture and storage is designed to be able to keep using fossil fuels, but the problem is it's not working at the scale yet to make it viable. But more importantly, putting that in place is just going to push up the price of electricity, which makes the whole hydrogen industry then not competitive before it even gets off the ground. The only way the hydrogen industry is going to work as an export commodity is if we can produce it with renewable energy. That's the only way it's going to be price competitive. That's sustainable business consultant Amanda Carl ending that report from Stephanie Smale. And you can keep up with all of the latest election news and have your questions answered by the ABC's best political analysts by listening to Australia Votes, our new daily election podcast. Just search for Australia Votes on the ABC Listen app. 
On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. Well, let's talk about the big bucks now. Billionaire Elon Musk has bought Twitter for $61 billion Australian dollars. The Tesla CEO wants to transform the social media platform, which he says doesn't live up to its potential for free speech. But what does the sale mean for millions of Twitter users? Carly Williams has more. It was on, it was off, then it was back on again. Right now, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. dollar deal today for Musk to buy the company and take it over. He's going to be paying each share of Twitter. It's official. Twitter has agreed to a takeover offer from Elon Musk, who will take the company private in a deal valued at around $44 billion, or $61 billion in Australian dollars. Barring any hiccups, one of the biggest social media platforms is his. The world's richest man wants to make Twitter better than ever by, quote, enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open to increase trust and defeating the spam bots. The tech businessman has complained about Twitter not living up to its potential for free speech. Dan Premack is business editor at Axios. He has said that he wants this to be more of what he calls a free speech platform, which most likely means that so long as what you post doesn't violate local law wherever you are, he's going to let that go up. So how will this change our lives? Could enhancing free speech on Twitter open the platform up to disinformation? Kath Gelber is a free speech expert at the University of Queensland. She's nervous that private entities have so much power over how we communicate and says that less regulation on Twitter would be a worry. And we know that social media platforms like Twitter are already doing very poorly at appropriate content regulation in order to minimise the harms that they profit from. Their entire business model is based on clicks, and you get more clicks, the more upset and the more angry people are. Um, You can even get deliberate provocateurs who put things out in order to get clicks because that's what drives the business model. And they're not very good. There's plenty of work, plenty of research showing that they're not actually very good at the regulation. There's some of it, they're trying, some of the platforms are trying, but Elon Musk has implied that he wants less of that moderation. And if it's just a free-for-all, it's going to be more harmful than it already is. The question no one really knows the answer to, except Elon Musk, is what really are his motives? Dan Premack reckons Elon Musk didn't buy Twitter to rake in more ad revenue. He doesn't necessarily view this as an economic concern. In other words, this isn't the idea that he's going to buy this for $44 billion, turn it into an $80 billion company and then bring it public or sell it. It's possible he just wants it to not lose much money and to run it kind of, you know, almost as either a public utility or sort of how people buy professional sports teams, right? They don't want to hemorrhage money but they don't need to make money. It's owning the team that's the value to these folks. I think that's true for Musk. Dan Premack says people on the left are worried about the acquisition and people on the right are cheering. Republican Congressman Jim Jordan is a staunch ally of former US President Donald Trump. He's tweeted, quote, free speech is making a comeback. Donald Trump was booted from Twitter and Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat following the January 6 Capitol Hill riot last year. Trump insists he won't return to Twitter, instead using his own Truth Social as his platform of choice. Dr Joanne Gray is a digital policy expert at the University of Sydney. She notes that free speech is regulated speech and platforms are trying to limit what we say on social media in the goal to prevent harm, which is not necessarily Elon Musk or Donald Trump's particular version of free speech. But any transformation will take time. 
for Elon Musk to make changes on the platform, he'd actually have to adjust the rules and and governance structures that are in place. So it will take a while for his influence in whatever form that will be to take effect. But he has said that he wants to take the company private uh, over time. And that means he will have more control and there will be less transparency and there will be less accountability. He'll no longer be accountable to shareholders. Uh, he'll be accountable or to, it won't be, a, if it's not a publicly listed company, um, he won't be accountable to shareholders. So that makes it harder for people to hold the company to account um, because there's less transparency. That's digital policy expert Dr Joanne Gray ending that report from Carly Williams. Finally today, the Russian foreign minister has warned the world not to underestimate what he's termed the considerable risk of nuclear war as the fighting in Ukraine continues. Sergei Lavrov says NATO's increasing support of Ukraine already amounts to a proxy war with Russia and that Western arms shipments are a legitimate target. The comments have come as the UN Secretary-General announces he'll visit Russia and Ukraine this week for separate talks with both leaders. Barney Porter reports. Vyacheslav Ivanushkin lives in the northeastern city of Kharkiv. There are bombardments all day and all night, he says. In the beginning, it was quieter at night. They only attacked during the day. But then they began bombing around the clock. Bombs even hit here in the yard and the windows fell out. There are similar stories across eastern Ukraine as Russia pushes for control of the country's industrial heartland. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia won't win. The lessons of history are well known, he says. If you're going to build a 1,000-year Reich, you'll lose. If you're going to destroy your neighbours, you'll lose. If you want to restore an old empire, you'll lose. But if you go against Ukrainians, you'll lose. His assessment is being supported by the West. It's now been 61 days since Russia invaded Ukraine and it has been 74 days since my Russia counterpart assured me that the Russian army would not be invading. Ben Wallace is Britain's Defence Secretary. It is our assessment that approximately 15,000 Russian personnel have been killed during their offensive. Alongside the death toll or the equipment losses, and in total, a number of sources suggest that to date, over 2,000 armoured vehicles have been destroyed or captured. Russia has also lost over 60 helicopters and fighter jets. Russia obviously disputes the bleak assessment, including comments made by the US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that Russia has already lost the war. Dmitry Polyansky is Russia's deputy ambassador to the United Nations. I don't, I don't think we failed, frankly. We, we conduct our military operation. It's not a war. It's a military operation. It has its own uh, strategy. It's, it has its own aims. It was never meant as a blitzkrieg. I don't know. It was uh, something that uh, Secretary Blinken maybe was imagining. And it's, it's really very difficult to comment on Secretary Blinken's uh, remarks because they are very contradictory. And overnight, the rhetoric has gone up a notch. In an interview on Russian state television, the Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has warned that there's a considerable risk of the conflict developing into a nuclear exchange if the West continues to supply weapons to Ukraine. 
As in any situation where armed forces are used, everything will end with a treaty, he says. But its parameters will be determined by where we are with the hostilities. That's when any treaty becomes a reality. That means Russia wants battlefield dominance before it goes to a peace table. The UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres will visit Moscow, then Kyiv this week for meetings with both Presidents Putin and Zelensky. UN spokesman Fahan Haq. We're coming at a, at a fairly delicate moment. It's important that he is able to talk uh, clearly with the leadership on both sides and see what progress we can make. Ultimately, the end goal is to have a halt to fighting and to have... Uh, ways to improve uh, the situation of the people in Ukraine, uh, uh, lessen the threat that they're under, and provide humanitarian aid towards them. So far, Russia's two-month-old invasion of Ukraine has left thousands dead or injured and forced more than five million people to flee abroad. That's Barney Porter reporting on the latest from Ukraine. That's all from the World Today team for this Tuesday. The PM team will be along later this evening with the latest news from across the country and around the globe. Thanks for your company. We'll be back again same time tomorrow. I'm Sally Sarah. Take care. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.